Hello? Hello? It's all around us. what's up welcome back and i have joe good friend of the show from ozone nightmare here uh the last time i talked to you was was a while ago and i was on your show were you doing a review with gene st yes that was our that was our beginning of the year i think catch up or end of last year and we're going to do another one at the end of the year i think although now nothing's coming out so well oh no stuff's coming out it's just not stuff out yeah there's there's been stuff like uh there will be stuff out by then because I think Winter Soldier stuff will be out. And then uh, there's also been uh, there's been stuff on Disney Plus. There's been stuff on the WB. But we'll get to all that later uh, on. Unless something radically changes, I ain't going to no fucking theater. Oh, neither am I. So. No way. No way in hell am I going into a theater. But we were discussing show ideas before we even started this one. But I brought yeah. you here this week. We've got guest on the show. Her name is – I'm going to mispronounce this, Meg, if you're listening to the show. I know by the time we talk to you, I'll get your name right. But right now – I believe her name is Meg Heftall. She's one of the co-hosts of the Horror Rewind podcast. She's released two books, The Science of Monsters and The Science of Women in Horror. These are books that take horror movies and break them down to essentially the science and the things that are behind them. So I had contacted her. Oh, I just smacked my fist right into the damn table on accident. That hurts I heard that. like hell. Son of a bitch. Ow. I heard that. So I was like, well... And as I was messaging you on Facebook, one of the challenges now of what I do is trying to find the right co-host to come on with the right guest in the show and all the timing and stuff. You immediately popped into my head. You have failed yet again. Failed yet again. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you know, Joe would probably be really interested in this. But the funny thing is, is you haven't read any of these books or anything. But I know of your ability to be able to take something which is utter nonsense and make a show out of it. So I don't mean this is nonsense, but like you could take a kernel of an idea and make a whole goddamn podcast out of it. And I said, well, you're in the horror and, um, you know, well, this is what and, we're going to do. I'll t- and I'll tell you this. This is the benefit of me not having. And this is one of the things I I, I do more actively now is not if it's an I mean, I haven't done a lot of authors, but people I don't try to know too much about them because then I feel like I'm just asking a question I know the answer to. Uh-huh. And so it becomes less interactive. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually prefer that I don't really know her books because that will lead me to ask questions that won't be preformed. Like, Oh, I know what the answer is. And I think this would be interesting for the audience. You know, yeah. that's stupid. I want to be able to come up with things. That's, that's See, how I work better. Whereas I go in the opposite direction. I try to find as many of the interviews that the person has done. So I'm not giving them the same interview that they've done a thousand times. I try to like come at them with different questions or try to make it interesting and entertaining for them to at least be on here to talk about this. 
But I either way, I don't, I don't fall into that trap because I'm too fucking bent for a test. You're lazy. Podcast. You're 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 like you're you're like the, the slack too. podcast, and you make it work. Yeah. <laughs> so. yes, it should be called the slacker podcast. If, there, if if I was anything like that, it would be. Yeah. There is one thing that I want to ask her though. She's got the the book, the Science of Women and Horror, and she's also got this other book, the Science of Monsters, the ones we're going to talk about. And in the Science of Women and Horror. Like she talks about aliens in one of her books, and I, I thought for certain that she would talk about Ripley and aliens because, you know, we're gonna I'm gonna bring this up with her that Ripley is the quintessential female badass hero. Like she is the she is the female answer to Rambo and Commando. Like she's just this badass chick. She doesn't need a guy. She doesn't follow any of the usual tropes of a woman in distress or whatever. Ripley was just really fucking cool, and. She really doesn't give Ripley any love in any of these books. And when she does talk about aliens, it's all about the science of space travel and things like that. And I'm like, well, could you talk a little bit about what Xenomorphs would be? Why don't you talk about Ripley? Let's talk about Ripley being such a badass. And there's none of that in here. So I'm going to be like, you know, how come where's where's Ripley? I don't know. Am I, am I talking on my ass here? Am I making any sense? No? Yeah? No? Not are at you all. asking me that or are you going to ask her? <laughs> I'm asking like that? you that. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, you know what? It's I can't think of it now. I, I've been going back as people who – well, the four people who listen to our show know. Uh, I've been I've been watching a lot of older, be unknown, like low-end movies. And there are interesting examples of – I mean Ripley was the big one. That is, yeah. that is the thing about the Ripley character is it was a huge example. Like AAA, top-end movie with all the ingredients. Yeah. But there are interesting examples of – I guess you would use the word progressive now of progressive females in horror, science fiction, that type of stuff. The problem is they weren't in movies that landed. And I that's where the Ripley character is distinct. She was in this movie that was a top to bottom success in every way. It was nailed completely. And that's what propelled her forward and made it uh, all the more interesting is that this character in this movie was successful. So yeah, I don't disagree. You're right. Ripley is the big tentpole, I the one that everybody knows. What she was doing with this book was going more for the old, like, golden age of horror movies, like, like you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, yes. those movies. I don't think I, I think she kind of has a cutoff point to where you know movies started to change and stuff like that. But anyways, yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Um, we'll just jump in with the interview and talk to her, and then we'll take it from there. So uh, we'll see you guys at the other side. Meg, uh, I got, how do I say it? Hoftal? Hoftal. Hoftal. Yes. Meg Hoftal, the Swede, Finn, Norwegian, Heinz 57 mutt mixture of a last name that I've butchered twice now. Um, you That's have okay. Books. That's okay. You actually have several books out, but the two that we're going to talk about yes. are the Science of Monsters and the Science of Women in Horror. And you are also one mm -hmm. of the co-hosts of the Horror Rewind podcast, which is an outstanding podcast. Uh, since I found you, I've become a very frequent listener of it. Um, oh, awesome. Production is great. Topics are great. It's always a fun listen to. And if anybody's listening to this right now, go and subscribe to it if horror movies are your thing. So um, where do we get started with this? I guess we should start with your most recent book, which is The Science of Women in Horror. Um, admittedly, I'll go on full disclosure to everybody and say I got this book so recently before the show that I really wasn't able to give it a good solid read. I just thumbed through it. So the first thing we're going to bring up, and we're not attacking you by this by any means whatsoever, <laughs> we were talking before the show 
I was expecting to go through this book and you basically cover tropes in here for the most part, right? Women in horror yes. as tropes. Um, right. Did you have a cutoff point for the kind of movies or anything like that? Or, or were these all like golden age of horror movies or anything along those lines? Um, no, I think because we sort of call our podcast Horror Rewind, we mm -hmm. really started um, sort of looking back um, at the movies that we loved when we were kids. And that's always been kind of where we've started from. But mm -hmm. now even in the podcast and now with the writing, we also have sort of gone into the future as well. So um, we kind of start in that sort of 80s, 90s point, and then we go back and forth. And it's it's been really fun to sort of just say the world is our oyster and we can do any movie from any era we want. So the, the only thing that, I, that struck me as kind of odd is both mm -hmm. myself and, and Joe here are big fans of the Alien franchise, up to a certain mm -hmm. extent, I would think. There's no love for Ripley in here, who, in my opinion, <laughs> is absolutely one of the most badass female horror representation. Like, she's, she, I was saying before the show that she is, like, the female answer to Rambo and Commando. Here you have a chick that is yes. doesn't need a man. She's, she knows how to kick ass. Mm -hmm. She's got the machine guns. She's got the plan. She's the one that saves everybody's ass. You know, mm -hmm. and, and there's no mention of, of this incredible badass character in these books. Mm -hmm. Even in the science of monsters, you go into warp drive technology and things like that, but nothing mm -hmm. about Ripley. So please elaborate. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and I will explain. So um, my background, first I'll say my background is in fiction writing. So I write female driven horror. That's what I'm passionate about and, and fiction. And then of course that translated into nonfiction as well. But what I um, sort of, basically it comes down to, a lot of people take somebody like Ripley and they say, well, there is your iconic female horror character. As I just did. <laughs> right. Um, and, there, and there's something to be said about that. Um, but there's also something to be said about this um, badass uh, female character. And by the way, I've, I've had this argument with many, I will say men. I don't, I haven't had any women, um, come to me about this, but I've had men come to me. And what I'll say is that what makes Ripley badass are very masculine traits. Like you said, she's the answer to Rambo and, um, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it, there is a one note and sort of um, easiness to her character that we are that that's lacking some of the complication that we like to see in our female characters. We like to see them not be perfect. We like to see them maybe make terrible decisions. We like to see them maybe cry or um, go the wrong way. Um, but also ultimately, you know, be the, the trope of the final girl and make that eventually make smart decisions and eventually uh, grow. I like to see, I like to write and I like to see women who grow, who are complicated, who make poor decisions. And Ripley doesn't go through a lot of growth. She just is a badass and that's awesome. But um, she is awfully masculine, and she is a little one-note to me. Hmm. Joe, thoughts? <laughs> Interestingly, no, no, I actually agree in a sense, because one of the things that I find fascinating about Alien, and I actually like all three Alien movies, the first three. I know, Alien 3 sucks. Yes, fine, okay. <laughs> but I actually find 
those three movies are an interesting arc of that character because she starts off as like an undefeatable icon and becomes mm-hmm. basically just sacrifices, says, I can't win. The universe is screwing, screwing me and I can't win. I'm just going to kill myself, which is an interesting way for a character who is held up as an action standard to go. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like Alien 3 quite a bit. But particularly in Alien, Ripley starts off more interesting to me when she is acting in what would be in a traditional female role against type, which is she's not compassionate. She's not going to open the door to let them in and care. She's like, no, this guy's Mm -hmm. infected. Leave him out there. But by the end of the movie, she's basically just Tom Skerritt with different parts. uh, If you want to put it that way, it's basic. So I understand what you're saying. I I don't disagree with you. And and this is a point I was making to, uh, before we started to row beforehand, I said, Ripley is the one that in pop culture is seen as the first big example of a strong female character. I said, but if you go back and you start watching some of these older movies, 70s, mm-hmm. 80s, which uh, there are very flawed movies, but there are these rare yes. examples where women have these more powerful roles or against the type that you would just assume because, oh, well, it's the 70s, then the woman must just be a rape victim. No, there's there are movies that try. They generally fail because the rest of the movies are train wreck, but they're interesting examples where there are female characters that are not treated as sex objects or submissive characters. The problem is they mm-hmm. weren't an alien. Alien was the movie. Alien landed. It hit. It was big. Everybody was like, wow, alien. This movie looks and functions amazingly. Let's look at this creature. And the woman's the survivor. Like, it's all these elements that have elevated that character, even if there are elements of the character are not necessarily all that progressive. So that that's just kind of yeah. Um, I I I hear you. Yeah, I think that you're right. There are so many problematic movies, obviously, and that's something you know that um, Kelly, my co-author, and I have sort of like, and as she also um, hosts co-hosts Horror Rewind, we've sort of like had to come to terms with the fact that you know, as women who love horror, there are going to be movies that we love that aren't don't necessarily hold up to the standards of today, and that's okay. Um, and not every character we love is, is entirely, um, you know, uh, the kind of archetype that we want. Um, and a lot of them do fall into these problematic tropes and things, but I actually wrote an article about kind of comparing Ripley and, and the way people treat Ripley to the way people treat Wendy in Kubrick's The Shining. And a lot of people are like right away, like, oh, she's whiny. I don't like her. Um, but the, the sort of like huge, vast difference of the way they're treated when Wendy is also the final girl in The Shining, and I'm just talking about the Kubrick particular version, um, and she, you know, rescues her son and she gets out of that situation. But is she crying? Is she annoying? Is she all those things? Yes. But that makes her more complicated and interesting to me. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean I want to be her best friend, but we're talking about characters. But also, if if people love Ripley and Alien, awesome. I she is. I mean, she is a badass. Well, I, I think your your commentary on Wendy is particularly. I think this is what you're getting at with the Ripley comparison because I'm mm-hmm. I'm sitting here when I watch The Shining, I'm like, okay. I don't get the crying and, and annoying thing because I I guess I'm just not like Rambo material. Cause I would be crying. I would be, annoying, exactly. I'd be shrieking. Like this is a hard <laughs> death house with the yeah. person you trusted up to this point has now turned on you. I'm sorry. What is the appropriate reaction? 
exactly. flamethrower. Plus, when they yes, were Bobby. when they were filming that movie, like Jack Nicholson was was going. Like, have you ever seen the behind the scenes of it? I know. You, I think, and I'm sure you guys have, where Jack Nicholson's all like freaking out right before they're getting ready to film him, and the director mm-hmm. was like berating her and like putting her down mm-hmm. and trying to put her into a different state of mind. To, to mm-hmm. get the full effect out of it, which, in my yeah, opinion, Kubrick is, was not a humanist by any sense. No, he <laughs> sounds like he was a monster to work with. But, you know, so like when she's freaking out on screen and he's doing that thing with the axe and all of those key moments and stuff, it's like th- there was some of that that was real. Some of that was like she she probably yeah. really was like in an emotional freak out state. And, and Nicholson mm-hmm. was like, I'm a monster. I'm an animal. And he's all running around the room and stuff, getting ready to film and stuff. <laughs> and I'm sitting here watching this going like, what the fuck? You know, it was crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, you can swear here, by the way. But, um. I was oh, like, okay, what? good. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is this all about? So, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, you do bring the shining up in one of your books, though. You bring it up in is it the, you bring it up in the science of monsters? Um, yes. Well, I guess. Uh, well, we could either start with the science of women in horror, if you want to, or we can we can go back and forth, however you want to do it, because you're obviously whatever. However, the conversation flows. As far as the science of women in horror, the way I kind of describe it is, it's our our feminist horror manifesto and we we really we got to talk to amazing women we got to interview d wallace we got to interview um vanessa wright who runs the women horror film festival um alice lowe who's been who made the movie prevenge um so we got to talk to like amazing women in the industry so um that was really fun and exciting but also we really get to get into i mean there are so many vast things like i'm a huge x-files fan Mm-hmm. And um, there's something call- in science called the Scully effect, talking about um, how uh, girls who watch the X Files, there is proof proof that they went into more STEM um, uh, careers, and how it is important to see, you know, what you want to be on screen, and how horror can actually provide that, and science fiction can provide that. So there's so many fascinating things um, in that book. And then Science of Monsters is sort of really our our beginning, our start. We we take, you know, horror films, because that's our background. Like I said, I'm a fiction writer. I'm a um, film studies person. Um, and Kelly is theater communication. And so at first, we were like, well, we were a little intimidated by the word science, just because that's not our background. But then we realized everybody who was going to be reading it or most people who are going to be reading it aren't going to be, you know, um, people uh, aren't going to be like brain surgeons or anything. So it's about um, learning these things and sort of tying them back to the horror movies, which was obviously like a dream come true job. Well, I guess we'll just do this. Why don't we start with Halloween, which is one of the things I sent you in the show notes okay. because Jamie mm-hmm. Lee Curtis, main character of that movie, who is another, mm-hmm. uh, you know, female uh, protagonist, Mm-hmm. Who um, ends up coming up being the survivor and ends up in her own way becoming a badass? I never saw the I never saw the one where she came back though. Uh, to, uh, the last Halloween or whatever. You mean Halloween? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, just Halloween. <laughs> just <called> Halloween. <laughs> Not Again? to be confusing. Yes. Um, so in in, the, in that chapter in the book, you talk a little bit about child killers and mm-hmm. how how there actually are these children that have actually killed people and stuff. So mm-hmm. let's start with that, and then we'll go into a little about okay. the craziness of Jason himself. Yeah, so um, for Halloween, uh, we did go into, I mean, that's kind of one of the more fascinating things to me about the, the movie, and it's one of my favorites, um, is that we see him killing his sister when he's young at the beginning of the movie. And so Kelly and I sort of delved into 
you know, where does that come from? Are there kids like, you know, there's something that we actually explore in, in science of women is the idea of like creepy little girls. Cause that's like very much um, a thing in horror films. Um, Again, so, the shining, the two twins that are standing in the hallway. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> the and, ring, and, and, the eye, uh, I know, dark water. Jeez. So, so many. So we kind of go into that, but there is this sense that children uh, carrying a knife or whatever um, is terrifying. It's like extra scary. Um, so we went into the actual instances of kids killing and it seems like there's sort of like this two prong thing where it is without a doubt psychopathy or psychopathy, whatever you want to call it. But it's either one that they are raised in such a terrible environment that they actually their brain sort of forms differently. And um, one instance would be a little girl named Mary Bell. Um, this was in Britain in the 60s, I believe, 1960s. And she, um, at the age of about eight or nine, killed two little boys, um, one, four, one, five, um, brutally. And, um, I mean, she mutilated and, um, they sort of go back and, and figure out that she had been uh, terribly, terribly abused herself. And um, in 1980, she was let out of prison and she's still living today um, in England, where, of course, you know, they're not they, they don't throw away the key there like they do here. But um, and then there's this other prong of it, which is this idea that there are simply children who are born um this way and there's nothing that can be done in the nature you know it's that very much nature versus nurture there's nothing that can be done uh to prevent it so um i can't the name left my head but the girl is the slender man murders oh yeah when yeah. i was watching the documentary about of uh, the parents who seemed very suburban normal and they were talking about their daughter who uh attempted to kill this this girl she, her mom got this weird vibe from her when she put Bambi on for her for the first time because she was expecting her daughter to cry and feel empathy, just like we all did when we watched it and the mom dies. And her daughter was very cold and unfeeling about it. And the mom just kind of got shivers. And so there's something so frankly fucking scary about that your kid is not a blank slate and that they just come out with no empathy. And it's that no empathy that then, you know, is where I think, um, Mike Myers really, that's, that's the face of him. And that's where, um, Jonathan Carpenter, uh, you know, he saw that that's what he saw when he, he saw the face of somebody with no empathy, no humanity. Um, somebody even worse than Stanley Kubrick, who really has no, um, idea what it's like to be human and people are born that way and it's just it's terrifying uh that that's that's a possibility and so yeah children can kill and you know a lot of times when we're talking about serial killers later in life they often don't fall into it until they're in their teens and 20s uh but it's scary to think that you know this idea of mike myers killing his sister is very much real and ironically, they used a William Shatner mask for him to wear. <laughs> Talk <laughs> Which, about no emotion. <laughs> yeah. From what I understand, Shatner was pissed about that. To this day, I guess he still has. Oh, really? Still yeah. If I've, I've, that's what I've read. I've, I don't know how true it is, but that's what I've read. 
But oh, um, funny. So you also talk in here about this thing about Michael Myers just being just relentless juggernaut and taking all these hits mm-hmm. and not feeling pain. And you actually talk to somebody about that this is there's real medical conditions behind this that this is based on. Yeah, I mean, you know, whether the truth is we've all seen, you know, the Friday the 13th movies, the Halloween movies. And of course, these villains, they always seem to, like, get back up again. Right. Um, and, and whether or not there's anything sort of indelibly um, supernatural about it or not, it was kind of fun for us to figure out like, okay, you know, if a bad, bad guy, if the boogeyman's in your house, is this really possible? So yeah, there's this idea of, you know, of course, adrenaline and um, when people go through shock and things like that. But then there are also conditions where literally people um, can't feel pain. And so that was fascinating because it's actually a very sensitivity. Is that what that's um, called? I can't remember what it's called, but it's Where you can get a broken it, leg and you don't know because right. your body's not sending you the signal. Yeah, yeah exactly. okay. Exactly. So it's actually quite dangerous because you could be walking around a broken leg and not know it. And um, it, it's it's quite terrible if you have it because um, you won't get that connection and know like, okay, I'm in pain and I need to stop sitting this way or doing whatever. Um, so that was fascinating. And then there's this idea, too, um, to go back to the X-Files. Um, in the episode Home, there is talk about genetic Oh, that's genetic a creepy mutation. episode. The best episode ever, right, guys? That's um, the one with the woman and the kids in the house at the end, right? Yeah. Where she's sitting yeah, there. Yeah, she's that like, that um, ah, ah, yeah. <laughs> you, you have it in your book as congenital insensitivity to pain is what you have. Okay, yes, 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 thank uh, you. Yeah, so, mm-hmm section of the yeah. brain that just doesn't it doesn't wear incorrectly so they're incapable right? of feeling pain um i've known somebody who had something like this it wasn't wow. it, they could feel they could feel pain but it was very much dulled and um they actually had to wear like uh like depends diapers and stuff like that because they couldn't tell when they had to go to the bathroom oh. so they would pee themselves yeah. sometimes it, which i was like that's oh. a really strange side effect that i never would have expected that is because on the surface it kind of sounds great mm-hmm. like oh that's not so bad like never feel pain or fear, feel very dull pain but yeah that's that's not a good side yeah, effect at all all kinds of weird, like they don't, they, um, actually it turns out most people that have these kinds of conditions, most of these people don't live very long for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But she was also mm-hmm. telling me she has to watch how much she eats because she doesn't know when she's full sometimes. And she's like, there's times where I've literally eaten so much oh. that I just start to vomit because my stomach <gasps> doesn't register that it's full. Oh and my God, were, that's yeah, crazy. All of these different things that I had never thought about. And she's like, yeah, tooth, right. pro- tooth problems. I have to be very diligent about going to the dentist because if I get something goes wrong with my teeth, I don't have toothaches. I don't have, you know, I don't have all these kinds of things. Oh, but she had, there was a medication that they gave her that helped with it. So she wasn't like wetting her pants anymore and stuff. Oh, but, thank um, God. There was all of these different things that she, like things that me and you and everybody else just take for granted. Mm-hmm. We don't associate with pain, but the body, the receptors in the body still work that way. And I, yeah. I was just like blown away by it. She's like, yeah, you don't understand. Like there's like, she's like, even just like wearing a pair of shoes, you don't, you don't realize when you're growing out of your pair of shoes because your body doesn't register the pain from your shoes, from your feet wow. growing out of it. You know, she's like anything yeah. that has to do with pain. And, and I was like, really? And then she's like, in sex, that's a whole different thing too. On top of that, she's like, you can't oh, enjoy no. it. I was like, wow, I never thought of any of this stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it well, you convinced me I don't want this. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I, it was on the surface. You think, wow, that's really cool. You know, you just walk through a plate yeah. glass window and keep on going and be indestructible. And she's like, no, it's, it's not cool at all. It's, it's not, 
you know, yes, you can you can put your hand into a boiling pot of water and pull an egg out or something like that, and you but you're still getting burned, then, you're still getting hurt. Right, you're still damaging your body. Yeah, you just don't feel it as well. And she she couldn't oh. uh, she still felt pain, but it was far far numbed. It was more wow. of um, she said it was a, a sensation similar to like when your arm goes to sleep, the pins and needles that kind of effect. Oh sure. Yeah, that was how it was explained wow. to me. It was uh this I knew this girl years and years ago. I haven't talked to her in a long time, but she had told me all these different things that I, I just. I just didn't expect. And she's like, diarrhea, that's another bad thing that you don't want to go into talking about. <laughs> oh, <gross. laughs> oh, God. This so, is awful. Yeah, I know it is. It's really, really bad. So, uh, oh, God. S- since we brought up Jamie Lee Curtis, is there anything that you'd like to say about her in regards to that movie as well? You know, I think that she's a great example of a good final girl. I think that she is not perfect. I They give her a little bit of a Pollyanna um lacquer as they do many final girls you know she's the one who's more studious while her friends are the ones who are interested in sex which of course is um you know something we talk about in our books um but yeah i think jamie lee curtis um in that film as well you know when she did the new one that came out i guess <laughs> the years are feeling this year's feeling really long so mm. i think it was last year or the year before yes i believe um, it was called halloween wasn't it <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, that one. Um, yeah, and it was great because, you know, that's another thing is there are not a lot of final girls who are of of an older persuasion. So um, that was great, too. So, yeah, she's she's a badass, but, you know, she she grew into a badass after dealing with Mike Myers so many times. Mm-hmm. And I like that. What was was it the third Halloween movie that actually had nothing to do with Michael Myers? That was the one where they had yes. the, the yes. silver shamrock witch. Yeah, I yeah. love that movie. Yeah, with the masks that melt the kids' faces. Fuck yeah, and the, the yeah, spiders dude, and the bugs come it. out. Uh, I, uh, it's all based on the <laughs> and, and the masks are. I don't know what the point was to kill kids through the TV, but yeah, yeah I, I love I mean, that movie. I know a lot of people love that movie, and I'm I don't I don't know if I would use the word hate, but I just don't. I guess like you, go, I went into it thinking it, you know it was going to be a Halloween movie, so it's oh, all about it's expectation. Shit. Don't don't get me wrong, it's a shit movie. <laughs> But it's so fucking bonkers and misguided and the main character is so unlikable that it becomes one of those – I'm into those type of movies. I like movies that are so terrible. I just watched Jaws the Revenge today for for a double uh, episode with a guy on Orca, which is actually not as bad as people think it is, and Jaws the Revenge, which is as bad as people think it is. Although Ellen Brody makes an interesting final girl because she's the one who survives all the movies and kills the son of a bitch at the end. So that's right. Well, but it's garbage. I know. I like garbage horror movies too, especially like the ones that I watched when I was younger. And then I just have a special affinity for you can't help it. Yeah. What's, what's your favorite garbage movie from when you're a kid that you still think fondly of? Good question. Oh my gosh. There's so many. (laughs) And why? Oh God. Oh God. Um, well there, I mean, there's one that (laughs) we've done an episode on that I watched with Kelly when I was a teenager called invasion of the blood farmers. And it is so bad. Yeah, it's It's, bad. It's really bad, but it's bad in a way that we just really love it too. Like we, we actually kind of love it because it's so if there's something like, you're just like, wow, you tried to make a movie. Like, good for you. Bless their hearts. And I don't know. We just, we really get a kick out of that one. But there's so many, um, you know, I can only think of good movies. I'm like, well, I love Clue when I was a kid. But I think that still holds up today. Um, Did it have like six different endings to it, too, or something like that? Yes. It had 
three endings, I think. Yeah, I think there was three. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, at least. Which were random. Imagine that. You go to a theater, you have no idea what you're going to see. So if two people come out of two different theaters, two different days, and yes. they're like, how'd you like the ending? Man, I can't believe this guy did it. What, do you, what did you watch? <laughs> That's a great idea. Yes. I, I love that one. I loved, oh my gosh, I would watch anything. Like, I... I often say, like, I'm really glad Netflix and Shudder and all of that didn't exist when I was, like, um, in my teens and early 20s because I would have, like, not gone to college and just wasted my life watching everything. So I'm glad that I had to work a little harder to get, like, go to a blockbuster. We used to have the Saturday morning, it was either Saturday or Sunday morning matinee double feature, and they were always bad movies. There was, like, like there was Blackula. There was uh, one that sticks out of my head. is this really bad horror movie that was made with DeForest Kelly from Star Trek. And I think it was called Night of the Leopus. And it was about... Yeah, the one with the giant bunnies. Yeah, the giant killer rabbits. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's oh, horrible. Oh, it's one of the most boring movies you can ever watch. Yeah. Oh. That, that movie is the reason why legalized marijuana ones. should exist. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> like, it was like, you could... They, I remember the end scene. They were stuck inside this house. The rabbits were oncoming, and they charged an electric fence or something. And they they just railroad tracks. Yeah, that's it was, what was they, yeah. they took a bunch of families from a drive-through with kids, and herded the bunnies onto electric railroad tracks. And everybody watched them get annihilated, including the kids, <laughs> as these things shriek and electrocute and die. Yes, well, it's a wonderful family film. And oh, love it! It's it's really horrible. You should watch it. And the, I'm going to. <laughs> they, they 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 tried to do the whole Japanese kaiju thing where they just built like a miniature scale town and had bunnies hopping around mm. in the dark on it and it's very <laughs> obvious yeah and, um oh. like i don't think you could i don't think but they would sh- show it on regular tv now because i think the bunnies are actually getting shot or I, they look like they are at least i don't know it was, yeah it was bad worrisome well they've got they've got blood yeah. smeared on it it would probably traumatize kids but yeah. uh <laughs> but the poster's fascinating because it's very deceptive it makes you think these are giant monsters it's just eyes they're bunnies, Ooh. and it's just bunnies. Hey, it's and the miniatures are fantastic. Yeah, the it's miniatures just bunnies. are great. Like they don't look horrific at all. It, it's they it's actually look, they didn't put fangs in them or no, anything. No. They did slow mo. They slow mo <laughs> them down yep. so that they looked like they were bigger, and that's <laughs> yes. and they're not. Yeah, and I everything mean, is dark. They only attacked at night for convenience purposes of filming. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. That <laughs> that makes sense. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to check that one. It's out. bad. You, like you really should time. see it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I it's, will. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a night if you have edible marijuana that you may want to consume yes. it to, to, to get through it. So, Necessary. Um, yes. <laughs> um, but there was Blackula, and there was all like the, you know the giant tarantula movies and stuff like that, which I think you talk about in one of your books, uh, the mm-hmm. giant spider trope. Um, the yes. uh, them the ant movie uh there was uh food of the gods i believe it was with the giant them, rats yeah, yeah i like them yeah mm-hmm. those, those are all the movies that i used to watch on saturday mornings and then through the oh, beauty yeah. of mystery science theater 3000 you know i was able to revisit mm-hmm. some of those but mm-hmm. um so uh let's move on to nightmare on elm street the uh okay now you have bring up something in the book about the uh mm-hmm. there was a Apparently in 1981, they did this thing about uh, some uh, family in Vietnam or a village in Vietnam where people were dying from nocturnal deaths. And mm-hmm. do you do you remember much about that or what the story? Yeah, was well, that? it's one of my sort of <laughs> I hate to say favorite because it's like very dark and real, but it's one of my the more fascinating things in the book that I, I really like learning about. And basically. Um, we talked to a woman who is Hmong. Uh, we live in Minnesota and there's a very large Hmong population and they um, were displaced during the Vietnam War. And we talked to a woman who uh, runs the Hmong uh, Museum in St. Paul and she 
knows of people who died this way and who have family members who died this way. And it is not just Hmong or not just Vietnamese people, uh, but it's specifically Southeast Asian men. And uh, what's fascinating is sort of where the, the culture and folklore sort of fuse with the science. And basically what was happening, yes, in the 80s, shortly after, um, you know, the Vietnam War ended, these young, healthy men were dying. And they were dying specifically in their sleep. And uh, the Hmong culture and other Southeast Asian cultures believed that this was a, a demon that was uh, pressing himself on their chest and making it so they couldn't breathe. And then the fear came. So then not only were these young men dying, but it's felt that because the sort of the way that the the cultural beliefs at that time was that they were freaking themselves out so bad that that was actually exacerbating what we now know has to be a genetic heart issue that um, was, you know, basically just something that was unfortunately running rampant at the time in their culture. Um, What's sort of so crazy to think about is they were really believing that these these demons were at work and, and it's believed that the stress of that fear and also the stress of being displaced after the Vietnam war is what really sort of took it over the edge and made these, these genetic heart conditions so much worse. Um, now Wes Craven read about this and this is what he sort of took when he uh, started creating Freddie. And what's interesting is in other cultures, when we're talking, and many cultures over all over the world have sort of a sleep paralysis creature. Now, sleep paralysis is, I don't know if you guys have experienced it. Oh, I've, I've, yeah, I've, several I've, times. Several, several times. times. Yes. Okay, I have once. Um, it's when you wake up and you feel as if there's somebody um, typically on top of you and you feel like there's another entity in the room and you can't move your... Um, arms or your body at all is that mm. how you would describe your yeah well i had it ha i've had it happen three times the f it is terrifying okay. um i never felt mm -hmm. like a presence was in the room though but i did wake up and okay. couldn't move or anything like that the first couple of times it was terrifying by the third time it happened i recall being just pissed off it was like i mean you know i was like i was i was <laughs> yeah, just genuinely pissed off like okay, yeah i was i was like this is annoying but um on our show we do cover para paranormal sometimes and i've seen that that uh -huh. is a reoccurring uh trope if you will an alien abduction phenomena you mm -hmm. see a lot of people say well no you weren't actually abducted by an alien you were having sleep paralysis because it mirrors a lot of the same things that happen in alien abduction phenomena but you don't hear mm -hmm. about people actually dying from it. Um, I've ran across yeah. what you're talking about before in a book, of, uh, in, oddly enough, a book about sleep paralysis. And it talks about that at the beginning of the mm -hmm. book about how this was such an isolated and strange phenomenon that only appeared to happen in this part of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And you would expect it to happen other places, um, you know, because every culture has their boogeyman. They're like you got Chupacabra and you've got all these different legends mm -hmm. and stuff that are out there. So you would think that this would happen someplace else. But this was a very strange incident that just happened in this village. You know, it's just like mm -hmm. every, people were dying in this village because of this. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really it's a really unnerving and scary thing, especially because, you know, we're taking that that sort of cultural lens and putting it onto the science. And, 
you know, Wes Craven sort of became obsessed with this because it was so bizarre. Um, and that's where he sort of ran with the whole Freddy idea. And when I had sleep paralysis and it literally was just this one time and I couldn't move and I felt as if somebody was on my chest, but I couldn't see anything, but I felt like somebody was sitting on my chest. Mm-hmm. And it's that idea of sitting on your chest that seems to be universally um, when we're talking about the actual demon. I mean, there's also ideas of like succubus or succubi that they also do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of sleep paralysis, which is basically just um, has to do with a, a sort of disconnection between your conscious and unconscious mind and your body. It, it's sort of like a scary um, hiccup, so to speak. Yeah, there's a disconnect it, where your brain doesn't tell your right. body to wake up, so it's still locked right. into that sleep phase. Even though you're awake, exactly. it's not letting your body move. Yeah, it's, right. It's it's weird. It's, you kind of just like when you had it. Did mm-hmm. you kind of just fade out of it, or did you, did you just did you just pop back? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I was so scared in that moment, and I think it just kind of. Oh, I think I faded. Like I think it kind of faded, and then it was like okay, you know, because I'm thinking when I woke up, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to tell my husband like there's somebody in the room. Uh-huh. And but then I couldn't talk or move my head, and oh my gosh, it was scary. So I could see how if that you think you're having a stroke is what it is, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's what I thought. I thought I thought for sure I was having a stroke. Oh God, yeah. And then that's the thing is, whatever like you know religion and culture and lifestyle you're steeped in, that you're gonna go down that you know thought pattern. Like I was probably thinking, oh my gosh, somebody's in the room to murder me because I love murder and reading about murder all the time. But somebody who is in Southeast Asia is going to be like, wow, this is, you know, if, if they were steeped in that culture and they believe they're going to believe that it's this, this particular demon and that, you know, it's come for them. And so, you know, that's where Freddie was born. And, and it's just a fascinating sort of circumvention. And thankfully um, since then there has not been such a prolific, death of Southeast Asian men. Um, and you know, whatever sort of genetic issue seems to have faded over time. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those strange things in the world that are hard to explain, but, um, but made for a good movie and a good movie series. Now you make note in there that there's Wes Craven based some of that movie on real life experiences. Was that what, was Mm -hmm. that his real life experience or did he have something like a real life experience that helped trigger it? He sort of took that and, you know, like any good um, fiction writer, you always got to you take two things. That's something I've learned. You you take your your one horrific thing and your other thing and you combine them together. And that's what he did. He he took what he read about um, what was happening in, in that community. And then he remembered when he was a child looking down at the street and there was a man in a wide brimmed hat who looked up to at him and clearly scared little uh, Wes Craven. And the man had quite a um, sort of giddy, sort of cheeky grin on his face, like, ha ha, I scared you. Um, and it just stuck with Wes Craven, just this look. And he, that was where sort of, I always call Freddy very cheeky. That's where the sort of cheekiness came in with Freddy Krueger. And he just is so happy and excited to be killing you. Uh, unlike, you know, the very mute and unemotional Mike Myers. Um, so that was kind of where those two things um, connected to, to make, you know, the one of the best, you know, most memorable horror movies and horror villains. 
also there was a, a female uh, uh, the, the main protagonist of the movie was also a female mm-hmm. as well I believe because she came back for a couple mm-hmm. of more of the movies later on oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. she came back to die basically in what three or four well yeah and then there's the really meta one where she oh that's herself. yeah the final 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 nightmare oh. yeah that's it that's it yes mm-hmm. that's actually a better one the one where yeah, she comes back and dies bad. within 20 minutes is not you know it's like what'd you bring yeah. her back for and yeah. that's, that's stunt <laughs> casting uh, I have a question for you. Have you seen, because I saw on the cover of Science of Monsters, you have the Bride of Frankenstein, who, of course, is one of the great, you know, known female horror icons uh-huh. from older movies. Have you ever seen the movie Dracula's Daughter? Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. What? Um, r- okay, no, I will encourage me. you to watch it. Dracula's okay. Daughter, I, I, I watched this maybe, I don't remember when I did the review on it on our show. because I, Oh, I remember this. I don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I came across this movie somehow. I don't remember where I first heard of it. And it was, the, I'd never heard of it. I, I've only heard of the regular Dracula movies, which, you know, they're fine. Uh, but I was like, Dracula's daughter. And it's a, it's the it's the daughter of Dracula. It's exactly what the title says. And sure. it starts immediately after Dracula uh, okay. and has one of the most brilliant little setups for how Van Helsing didn't get put in jail, where <laughs> he goes to Scotland Yard and they say, did you kill Dracula? And he says, he says, I destroyed him. But he was dead for over 500 years. So technically, that's not murder. And you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, that a makes loophole. sense. Oh, it's fantastic. It's wonderful. And that's that's how Van Helsing's in the movie. That's really that's their reason to keep him there. And, they, and so Dracula <laughs> had a daughter who is cursed with vampirism, and she doesn't want to be a vampire. So she burns his body, destroys it, uh, and, tr- and thinks that'll cure her. And she has a manservant. And he's like, no, that's not enough. You're still a vampire. And Aww. she still has a thirst for blood. And so she's going around trying to find a scientist. Well, she ends up finding a guy who's a scientist and she thinks, okay, uh, if I have enough will and he can come up with something, I can drive the vampirism out. But what's really fascinating about it is it's really the the main character being the, 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 the countess. I don't remember what her name is, whatever it is. Uh, she is such a fast, I mean, Everybody knows the Bride of Frankenstein. I'm like, this is the person people should know because she is such mm. a riveting figure in the movie really? and has this present. Oh, yeah. Really, really good. And then later, I mean, I don't know how people. Well, I guess at the time they just didn't want to talk about it, but it's clearly playing around with the idea that she's at the very least bisexual, if not a mm. lesbian. I mean, it's mm-hmm. hard to miss even for a time. To- uh, the movie <laughs> yeah, was but that's from- a female vampire trope you see in a lot of movies. though. Yeah, no, that's true. Now, mm-hmm. but this vampire, is like therefore the third- lesbians. Yeah, okay, but this is from the mid-30s or the early 40s or something, so that's not... Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, there. it wasn't until, okay. like, the 60s, 70s that that was and it's popular. And it's not, it's not handled in a really ugly way. It's just it's just what Very it subtle. is. That's what's sort of remarkable. Yeah. It's just she doesn't care. She's just yeah. she's just drawn to whatever figure's in front of her. Uh, and, and then there's also... You can look at the way that the manservant acts towards her. It's almost like a... Uh, what do you call it? Uh domestic where, where it's an unhealthy uh, what the hell is the word dysfunctional it's a dysfunctional relationship between the two mm-hmm. of them because he wants mm. to be a vampire so if she gets cured mm. he doesn't become a vampire oh so, so he's maybe yeah, not looking so, out for her best interests and right there's this aspect mm-hmm. of is he really telling her is he acting in her best interest or his own so there's <laughs> all these interesting relationships that are around her, but she is the thing to watch. I mean, it's it's a I think it's wow. the best well, of the, the movie. That, I have to add that next to the bunny. Yeah, she's movie. got a list going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> jotting it all down. 
Yeah, it's a really fascinating movie, and I think because I saw cool. that you get Brian Frankston, I'm like, this is the same time period, and but so yes. different from those movies because the character is, you know, it's very, very much a female. I mean, she is, I guess, yeah. the antagonist. Not really, because she doesn't, she doesn't want to be a vampire. So yeah, which I is, like. I like that whole yeah. idea that she's like, you know, reluctant, yeah. and so you wonder why she's not more iconic. Yeah, and because she's so like she's got a very distinct look. She stands out. They dressed her. Obviously, they they did stick to the trope. She's all in black much of the time and with capes and right. all that stuff. But not you know giant vampire batwing capes. But <laughs> they they make her stick out from everybody else, and it's just immediately everybody. You understand why everyone around her is drawn to her as well because sure. she's unusual in the atmosphere that she's in. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the backdrop of her being so against what Dracula was like. Hey, I'm Dracula. Ha <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> and she's like, fuck that and doesn't want any part of it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, no, I, I, like was, that. I was struck by it because it's, it's, okay. maybe this is why it's not known is because it's not following the traditional lines, but I would say, right. watch that. One. It's a good one. Okay. That's a you talked watch. about, um, a girl walks al- home alone at night, um, yes. in your, in your other books. So since we're talking about female vampire movies, I guess it'd be a good way to jump into that book and go back to the other story. Um, mm-hmm. what did you say about that one? Well, um, you know, that was a great movie because it very much, you know, uh, flipped tropes on its head. You know, we talk a lot about tropes and the idea that um, a lot of movies that we love have tropes in them. They're not necessarily bad, but this is a situation where um, the vampire is, you know, just as he was just describing vampirism is just sexy. It just is. It, it connotates sex all the time. Um, and so it was kind of neat in, in that particular film. It's not about her sexuality, um, in, in the straightest, in the most normal sense or the most tropish sense. Um, and she's sort of using this power that she has, um, to, I guess, in a Dexter sort of way or however you want to see it. She's, she's using it to, um, you know, get rid of, get rid of who she thinks she should get rid of, you know, and it's not about sustenance or, or, you know, all the other things that, that sort of come into play. Now, female vampires, um, I, we talk about Jennifer's body, which I think is a really interesting, um, another one. She's more of like a succubus. Um, but you know, they're very much the same. And that's another one where she uses her sexuality because at the end of the day, vampire equals sexy. And, um, again, you were totally team Edward, weren't you? (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, Come on. (laughs) No, I, I have a, I have a special place in my heart for werewolves. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of fun to see women like flip flip it a little bit on, on, on back on the, um, sort of guys who are like, Ooh, yeah, baby. And then they get to, I mean, like there's the great movie teeth that we talk about. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. I have not. No, I saw it. Yes. 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 Um, where she has, you know, uh, something that doesn't exist, uh, exist called, I think it's vagina dentata, which means teeth in her vagina. Yeah. And it's a great movie because then she, you know, at first she's a reluctant, uh, just like uh, Dracula's daughter. 
But in the end, she realizes, wow, I can use this and get rid of some men that don't need to be on Earth anymore. So it's kind of like that traditional revenge tale, too, um, that we see a lot of in in female-driven horror. And I like how they use that in, in vampires, especially now. In your book, The Science of Monsters, you have a section in there for Nosferatu where you bring up that in 2005, bites from rabid vampire bats were blamed for 23 deaths in North Brazil. Um, yes. I, I can't recall the last time that I was attacked by a vampire bat, let alone people <laughs> getting killed by them. I, that, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, I, oh, like, I went down like this this um, rabies rabbit hole, too, uh, rabies, uh, for this book. Yeah. Yeah. And like that really unnerved me because there was I mean, unfortunately, the way we're sort of built is like oftentimes when something's happening in like the wilds of the Amazon, we don't necessarily it's not on our radar so much. Mm -hmm. But when things tend to come closer to you. um, You tend to sort of I don't know, it, it tends to come home in your mind. And and I read several instances of people who have died from rabies here in, in America. And I don't know, it was just, it, it's such an awful, horrible disease. There's literally one person. Yeah. One girl, one girl who's Mm. come back from the brink of it, but otherwise it's a real bad one. And so that was just fascinating to read about. Um, and this idea that, you know, of where, again, we were talking about folklore and culture, you know, a lot of people really actually believe that vampires existed and, um, having something like tuberculosis, it made more sense to them that that person was a vampire than that there was a germ that could, you know, cause them to die. And it's, it's so weird to think about now, but it made more sense in that time period. So, there's so much to uncover. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed because there's like 20 million routes to go when you're starting to talk about vampires. And nowadays you have people that actually that, that it's it's kind of like a fetish thing where they actually mm-hmm. do drink blood. Did you go into the book? I don't remember about actual ailments where if there's diseases out there where people who actually do want to drink blood or mental conditions that do this. Well, yeah. I mean, we didn't get into I mean, like you could get into like there's the um vampire killer Richard Chase who um literally he was speaking of bunnies like he would drink bunnies he would just buy bunnies and more bunnies and more bunnies and then dogs and I won't get into it but you know and he and that's what he loved to do and it, he had a very rampant um unmedicated case of schizophrenia um that unfortunately most people with schizophrenia are very you know not violent but in this case he was and that was you know in the 70s when people just said like they were still saying like just get tough and get over it and then he ended up you know taking that out into the streets and and murdering people um for the purpose of drinking their blood um we do not talk about in the book that in the book um but we do talk about Prophyria, which, um, you know, if you saw the movie The Others with the little children who um, can't go out in the daylight, um, that is a real affliction. And so, again, if somebody had an affliction like that, they, they don't want to drink blood, but they would have kind of a, a vampire appearance, being pale, not being able to go out. Um, their gums tend to um, uh, their lips over their gums tend to recede. So their teeth would look kind of pointy. It would make sense to people in the 17th, 18th century 
that you're a vampire rather than, you know, you have a genetic condition that just wasn't a thing. So um, it's just, a, it's fascinating. There's so many conditions and, I, and like you said, I mean, people have definitely, you know, fetishized um, vampirism as part of their sex lay now. Um, and, you know, it's about consent and that's great and people do what they want, but um, yeah, it just sort of runs, runs many different, paths and like I said it almost is overwhelming because you want to learn about everything but the book is only so long <laughs> I think it was the movie I am legend when they did the one with Will Smith and Will Smith mm-hmm. that they based the creatures in that movie um, as much as possible on real life ailments that actually exist uh, where the the vampires sure. can go out in the light and they would burn and how they looked how you mentioned like their lips receding you can see their teeth mm-hmm. and stuff and the pale condition of their skin that they yeah. wanted to make it as realistic as possible that somebody could, that a disease would run rampant in somebody and this is what it would do to them to affect them that way. Because you've got right. like the zombie movies like 28 Days Later and all these kinds of things, which mm-hmm. I think you're bringing up in your book too. You're, you're talking there about uh, The Walking Dead. And I couldn't watch mm-hmm. that show because I was like, all right, you're five years into this Walking Dead thing. These zombies should be falling apart and rotted away by now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I know. That was actually our main question. Yeah. <laughs> So. Yeah, we, um, my, my husband's actually a physician. So I was like, I'm going to interview him. Um, and I was like, you know, based, that was basically our question, like, oh, shouldn't they be like rotting on the ground by now? Um, and you know, the short answer is yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, but he also uh, taught us a lot about like the digestion of how that would work for a zombie and stuff like that. So that was a really interesting interview. Yeah, because when, when a person dies, as soon as they die, your body starts to reject everything. The bacteria in your guts and everything right. makes you expand uh-huh. like, like, like something that, you know, when, when something dies in real life. Yeah. So I guess we'll move on to the last thing that I wanted to cover, which was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you yes. go into extensive detail about what this movie was based on and where the ideas and stuff came to do this movie. That yeah. was another one of those movies up there with, uh, you know, the Return of the Living Dead or the original, the original mm-hmm. uh, Living Dead movies. That was one mm-hmm. of those movies that turned horror on its head in such an incredibly mm-hmm. strange way. Um, yes, it, it was just such a bizarre. Like th- that was one of those movies. Like I remember my mom. My mom used to get really buzzed and go see this movie, and she'd come back and tell me about it. Strangely enough, but <laughs> it's just such a really wild movie. Um, oh yeah, you know you got Leatherface and you got the house full of bones and it's, it's you know the, just the craziness of how everything goes down. So yes. let's talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and what it was based on. Yes, happy go so, lucky Ed Gein or Gein. I don't yes, know his name. Yes, yeah. of course. So what a fun guy. He is such a fun guy. He's he, I have to say he's probably my number one favorite topic of all time. I found I found him when I was like fourteen and I bought a book about him at the library sale. And, you know, my parents didn't you think were an perhaps interesting that child. Was... <laughs> yes, I was. I, I always tell the story about I had the book and I had to go on a babysitting job and I was going out the door with the book. And my mom was like, you know, maybe don't bring the book about Ed Gein to go babysitting. Like it never occurred to me. So I was mad at my mom, but um, she was right. She was definitely right. Um, but yes, I, I always liked dark and spooky things when I was younger. So um, Ed Gein was was definitely something I just globbed onto him. I don't know. He's just a fascinating character. And so what makes him so fascinating, especially is because and, and why Leatherface is based on him, why um, Norman Bates is based on him, why um, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs is based on him is because 
he's just, I think we as, as human beings, we just want to wrap our minds around this type of person because it is so aberrant and so far from who we are that it's like, it's hard to even process. And it makes for great horror movies because of that. So what's important about Ed Gein is that when he was sort of found out, um, when he was caught, it, that this was the time when media was really starting to be able to get across, you know, not just America, but across the world. Um, m- news was moving quicker. And the idea that this unassuming farmer um, who, speaking of babysitting, he babysat kids, you know, in his small Plainfield, Wisconsin town, that he had not only, you know, grave robbed pretty much a lot of graves and had taken them back into his home and his home was full of lampshades and he had a nipple belt. I mean, he was just a kooky guy. (laughs) Um, Not only that, but he then resorted to murder. And he is what we call, and we talk about this in the book, but he is a product killer, which means that he was not interested in killing people. He didn't get off, so to speak, on killing people like somebody like Ted Bundy. He just wanted the body parts. So he would just shoot. And as far as we know, he only killed two people, so he's technically not a serial killer. But I always say that I think Ed Gein deserves to be called a serial killer just for, you know, his proclivities alone. But he is, I mean, the, the scariest monster of all is the one that, that we are not expecting. And on its face, Ed Gein seems just like your average Wisconsin dude. And, w- and when you go into his house, the cops find what's in there. And then that is portrayed back to middle America in the 1950s who were all trying to get their lives back together and pretend that everything's perfect after World War II. It was just an explosion of depravity that people weren't used to talking about or seeing. And I mean, in my book that I had, there were literally pictures in it, which, you know, today I think it w- I'd like to think it would be harder to get a hold of pictures of these kinds of things. But at that time, you know, here's a picture of a dead body. Here's a picture of his skulls in his house and all that. So, I mean, it, it, it's hard not to sort of be changed by that. And so Toby Hooper, um, was not alone in being changed by that. Philip Block, who wrote Psycho, um, based Norman Bates on him, which is really fun to think about Norman Bates and Leatherface being, um, based on the same person, uh, because they're so different, but you can sort of see the aspects of Ed Gein, some of them being that mild-mannered Norman Bates. And then there's that idea that he treats people like meat, like Leatherface does. And, you know, it's it's just, there will be many more movies, I'm sure, based on what we know about Ed Gein, because he's just, he's a special, unique, one-of-a-kind killer um, who brings chills to anyone. And uh, Leatherface, you know, was worried about product and he was worried about his bone house and keeping his bone house nice and having bones in there and meat so i mean that's that's ad gain for you that's like you brought up the psycho thing that was another movie that was so unique and so different of anything became before because in this movie mm-hmm. you have the female character she does the she does the crime she escapes and the movie centers around her 
right mm-hmm. up until she dies. Mm-hmm. And she dies and you're like, what the hell? Now now what? It just kind of takes you there. And for yes. a little bit, it leaves you stranded. And then it immediately goes on to Norman Bates. But yes. the whole beginning of the movie, you get it, you, you get locked into this character. That's the character you identify with. And then, mm-hmm. boom, you're gone. And you're and it, sitting there like, what the hell? It you know? forces you to, to identify with Norman Bates because you – because you, your protagonist was just stolen from you. I love it because, mm-hmm. and then you're sort of spinning out and you're like, who is my person right now? Because that's just our natural way. And so I love that Hitchcock sort of makes us, makes us follow Norman Bates for a while. Um, yeah, that and again, yeah, that movie, I mean, changed the face of, of horror films. And I think Le- um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre did as well. I mean, really sort of, um, was the beginning of the slasher type genre. And then uh, Buffalo Bill, also based on Ed Gein, um, Silence of the Lambs is an absolutely, you know, important cinematic film um, that no one has forgotten yet. So, I mean, if you're, if you're going to have three movies based on you, those are three good ones, I guess. Since you brought up that you were a fan of the werewolf, have you yes. watched Wolf Cop yet, by chance? You probably <laughs> no, because I'm a fan of the werewolf, and I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, do yourself a favor. It, it is a shit movie. It's worth it for that. But it's, it's, it's crap. It, it's not good. It, it, I, I went. They, people talked about that movie being good, and I went and watched it. And I went, what? This yeah. is this is good. Okay. I mean, I'm not. I'll admit, I'm not a big wolf lycanthrope type anyway so you gotta no. you gotta go some yardage to get me to like a werewolf movie or, or oh, okay, whatever okay fair enough so i'll admit i'll admit i have a little bit of a, a, a bias but i still know the good movies when i watch them as opposed to oh yeah. it's wolf cop okay yeah this is this yes. is not the wolf man this is not brotherhood of the wolf or just wolf or whatever like movies that i can recognize have quality even if i'm yeah, like yeah 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 okay furry guy running around yeah claws got it okay <laughs> but he's a cop but he's a wolf. I mean, but not... he's been neutered or he's even spayed but anyways um Oh, so let me wow. ask you, he's been placed in a <laughs> bad movie. Um, since you're a fan of the werewolf movies, in your opinion, which werewolf movie has the best transformation scene? Oh, you know, maybe it's cheesy, maybe it's dated, but I'm going to say an American London. Yeah, yeah. London. That's the one everybody goes with. That's, that's the best. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, it is the one. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I, there's I mean, reasons certain movies have become special effects standards. You know, there's the reason the thing is known. There's a reason that movie's right. known. There's reasons movie, these movies are known. So, yeah, I mean, even Friday the 13th, a, the first Friday the 13th, the thing with the Kevin Bacon throat. I mean, Savini's had to explain yeah. that probably three million times in his whole life. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. And I'm a big fan of like practical effects, effects like that. Like, um, I don't know. <laughs> we were watching. We did an episode of um, The Haunting from like 1999 when they were like, everyone was like really getting like just way into CGI and to the point where like sort of their imagination with CGI Blood was like, splatter CGI. like <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, but I mean, it was just so over the top and not scary. Um, they're like little like angels like flying around and it's supposed to be scary and stuff like that. And it's like, there's something to be said about, you know, the Tom Zavini, the, the, the practical effects, the makeup that it, I like that stuff better. So I would much rather watch, you know, uh, American Werewolf in London and maybe, yeah, maybe you can like sort of see a little bit of the eighties 
but I prefer that over like a, at least a bad CGI werewolf. You don't like a lot of garbage computer stuff splashing around yeah. with no weight or reality whatsoever where actors yeah. are pretending it's real, but they can clearly not see anything. I don't right. know why. I know. Crazy. I know. It's I'm so crazy. enjoyable. <laughs> I saw that in one of your books, you got into the Gorgons and, and I assume probably the mm-hmm. Medusa story and all that stuff. Did you mm-hmm. get uh, in your books? Cause I, I'll admit I haven't read them either. So I, I, mm-hmm. I feel bad saying that, but um, no, it's okay. Do you get into the the thing with mermaids? Because a lot of the stuff with mermaids was news to me until a couple of years ago. Mm, with... No, we do not get into mermaids. I mean, Gorgons, we really kind of got into more of the like old crone, um, old lady, scary old lady witch type. Mm. Um, it was kind of more uh, the vein we were going. So no, we did not get into, um, but mermaids are, I mean, yeah, they can be scary. Mermaids are interesting because I, I, I'm, I just wasn't into mermaids, so I didn't really think about them outside of the Disney movie. But the more that I've read about the idea of what they represent and Mm -hmm. why they used to have two tails and now generally have one, and uh, like I watched The Lighthouse and I'm like, oh, 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 okay. And then I saw that movie, (laughs) The Lore, which is even more of a kind of direct. Uh commentary on what mermaids can represent so it's it's interesting to dive into because i think a lot of yes. us who don't get into the science of the background of the, like like i didn't know medusa's backstory i really didn't for years and years and years i just right. knew the stop motion thing from clash of the titans but i didn't know about right. her background and so she was always mm-hmm. a villain then you know you find out the backstory it's like oh man of yeah. course she wants to kill everybody uh, yeah fuck. right yeah, exactly it, it, right so mermaids are, are that type of thing where I've kind of read them like, whoa, man, this is this is disturbing. This is what all this shit because I always thought it was kind of where are you going? What do you mean by this? Older, Joe? Because like you're, what's the backstory with mermaids then? OK, so. Well, so mermaids, a lot of people look at them because they the like if you look at the old Starbucks logo, it's two tails instead of one. And so there's and then if you watch the movie The Lighthouse, there's a mermaid in it. That is purely a sexual object. And the movie is all about, well, I mean, it's about two guys going crazy, but really it's probably just one going crazy. And there's all these really heavy uh, homoerotic elements, you know, whether it's kind of like a love story almost between the two guys. But then there's this mermaid that shows up and she's really a sex object. And there's this stuff about how the mermaid's classic story or one of the mermaid classic stories is that if she goes on land, like in the lore, if the mermaids lose their tails, they lose their voice. And so they lose a source of something that's special of their power. And you can you can swap that in for losing virginity, which is often seen as like some kind of purity for women, that type of stuff. So there's all these background layers to mermaids that when you see all these stories, like Ariel has to go find the prince so that she can walk on land. So it's like she has to lose her tail. That's what I mean about there's all these layers to a lot of these things that. And I'm just specifying mermaids because I never thought twice about them. I'm like, oh, oh, fish women. Okay. Or fish guys, mermen. Sure. Right. Whatever. It fails. But I remember at one point seeing the original Starbucks logo. I'm like, why does the mermaid have two tails? And then I started reading about that. And that kind of like, uh, we brought it up on our show at one point. Lando like, really? I'm like, yeah, look, read this shit. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, because there's all these psychological elements to it and what, how they could use those fairy tales that they told the children as stand-ins for morality and chastity and all this other stuff. Like there's all this psychological sides to, I mean, many uh, fairy tales and, and stories that are told and morality tales have this. But I think a lot of people probably were like me and were like, oh, mermaids. Yeah, Ariel or, you know, Aquaman talks to them and don't think twice about anything else. 
And that's where I was, because mm-hmm. the Gorgon thing was the same thing. I, I didn't know what Gorgons were. I knew Medusa. Turned men to stone, got her head cut off, Kraken's dead. That was my knowledge of the Gorgons for a long time, until I was probably in my 20s, where I was like, oh, oh, there's more than one of these things around. Oh, there's a whole, ba- oh, they represent death. Fascinating. Who the fuck knows that? When you're 14, you're like, yeah, cut her head off. Fuck it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're not Jesus. thinking about this stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's how I am. I don't, I don't pretend I'm Yeah, no, that's, that, so, no, that's how we, I mean, and that's something we get, we get in a lot in, um, in our women of horror book, just about, well, obviously virginity um, is a huge thing in horror films, but yeah, I mean, there's all these messages that are being sent to us through archetypes um, and tropes from very early on. And oftentimes horror movies play around with them. You know, I get asked a lot, especially because uh, I think I'm a woman. I get asked a lot, like, why do you love horror so much? Why are you writing about horror? And I love how it, makes you sort of look through the kaleidoscope of life and look at the world differently. I love that. And being like, just like how you described with mermaids, it's like on its surface, it's just a fish lady, but really it's, it's sort of being used to teach girls to never open their legs. Right. Um, and so that they eat men horror films. (laughs) Right. Right. Horror films often usurp those ideas and revert them, and and that's what I love about that. I I love that they maybe show them for what they are and then tear them down. Um, not always. I mean, and I'm the first person. Who, I I love gore. I I love you know a good gory scene. So not everything has to have meaning behind it. Not everything has to be <laughs> you know feminist even. Um, I just like my plain old splatter gore too. So but it's fun to think about these things and sort of realize how important horror is in our culture and our world and I love Were you it. a Hellraiser fan? Were you a Clive Barker fan? Well, I tell you what, I wasn't, and then I was. <laughs> I don't know why, but I was very turned off by Hellraiser until, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say rather recently, and then I watched it. It was one of those things where I, like, prejudged it, and then I watched it, and I loved it. And now I'm reading Clive Barker for the first time. I'm reading Books oh, of Blood ooh, right now. Good series. So, if you start getting into his bigger yes. books, you're going to find some interesting stuff in there because the way he handles yes. female characters is different. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. if you get into Weave yeah. World and yeah, the Great one Secret the Show. Sisters are in where I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, because he goes, he yeah. does, yeah. he goes yeah. away from horror. He goes off into more fantastical fantasy, yes. but he does return back right. to Hellraiser. He does wrap that series up pretty well. And oh god, the Scarlet Gospels was the book that he finishes off the Hellraiser yes. thing. And he does a really good job of it. Okay. Not to mention, if I am I wrong that in Hellbound Heart wasn't Pinhead a woman? I don't pretty think sure in the so. Book that character was really? a female. I thought I thought that Pinhead, as we know him in the movie, had a ball of light for a head. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Well, I'll tell you because I'm going to read it soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure they, they did change that because I remember going, oh, when I, I read the book long after uh, the movie. And I, I was like, oh, he's that. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I could... All right, Meg, we're going to wrap this up here because we've had you on here for a little over an hour now. Um, when we're done, if you could hang out for a minute after the call, though, I'd appreciate it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is where I give the chance, as I always do when people come on the show, to promote anything they've got, where people can find your books, what other books you have, uh, how to find sure. your podcast, all of those things. This is Go ahead and put anything you want out there if you want to. Okay, so you can find The Science of Monsters and The Science of Women in Horror wherever books are sold. You can find my fiction. I have two short story collections called the Twisted Reveries collections. Those, again, are on Amazon, as well as my first two novels, Her Dark Inheritance and Daughters of Darkness. And my third novel is coming out this October, which will finish the trilogy. Um, again, you can find all that on Amazon or you can go to meghoffdahl.com. And I also write short stories for The Wicked Library and The Lift, which are horror fiction um, podcasts. And they are just excellent. Uh, they're so good. I love them. And so I write episodes for them as well as I co-host Horror Rewind. I always say that my co-host Kelly does all the hard work and I just show up and um, make jokes. So that we basically talk about horror movies and sometimes we talk from, you know, a female perspective and sometimes we just talk as horror nerds. So um, you can find that on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And our third book, The Science of series, is going to be the science of Stephen King and that is coming out in October as well so we have lots of exciting things (laughs) so Joe I'm assuming you're going to want to get her on your show for that one huh (laughs) oh probably sure why not I'll talk to anybody about stuff yeah (laughs) I've done a bunch of horror movie shows I can dive into anything with this stuff (laughs) thank you for coming on here thank you for sending me the books thank you for the conversation again everybody do go out and check out Horror Rewind the podcast Uh, recently you guys discussed Escape from New York on there I don't think you were on that episode though no it was I believe it was her and her husband yeah that was a fun show but um yes Again, thanks for coming on here, and uh, I'm sure I'll be bugging you again somewhere down the road. If not, I know Joe will. So, awesome. You know, I'll be I appreciate happy to be bugged. Yes, thank you so much, you guys. Coming in the dead of night. Coming to plant the living and harvest the dead. Invasion of the blood farmers. Within a week, the lab will be flooded with... With human blood. Hey there, fellow archivists. This is Alex from the AlexCast talking to you. Just wanted to tell you that I have a brand new book of short stories out. It's called The Terravada Machine and Other Stories. Available on Amazon. Just search for Alex Bolin, Alex with two X's. Or you can go to alexbolin.com if you want a direct link. That's A-L-E-X-X-B-O-L-L-E-N.com. The Terravada Machine and Other Stories. It's the sort of short story book that people that listen to Project Archivist would enjoy. It's got weird stuff in it. And emotionally wrought things. But you can skip those if you want. There's there's one about the Mandela effect. It's right up your alley. So please give it a read. The Terravada Machine and other stories. Available now. Thanks. Meg's a lot of fun. Um, it was neat talking to her. I really didn't have much of an idea of what we were going to go into as far as topics and stuff were. But she's cool. She's fluid. And it would be really neat for you to get her on there when she comes out with her Stephen King book. Because I know how you are with Stephen King. Oh, yeah. I know... Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and, I, and Clive Barker, I, I, I've read a lot of their stuff. So once she's, uh, you know, she gets a little bit further into Books of Blood, which is probably his, you can make an argument that was his best work. I mean, it's shorter and I like short stories. So I'll admit there too, I have a bias towards it. Um, but yeah, that's, Books that's, of Blood that's, series are great. 
those are my the Books of Blood series were my favorite. I liked Clive Barker in, in bite-sized proportions. His bigger stuff, though, I did. I've read everything by him. His other, except for the one I didn't really like, was Sacrament because that was so off the beaten path of anything that he had done. I didn't. I couldn't quite fall into that. I tend to like Clive Barker's stories in, in nice little you know snippets here and there because that was when they were the weirdest. There was the one story uh, in the cities, in the hills, the cities. Oh, people tied yeah. together, yeah. And Nine Inch Nails actually yeah. used part of that story in one of his songs, which was, um, God, what song was it? Sin. Yeah, he used he used a part of that snippet in one of his songs, and he actually credited Clive Barker in that album. But um, she's fun. Go out and listen to her podcast. I've said it a couple of times now. She's worth checking into. The books are really good. They're a lot thicker than I thought they would be. I'm like, how far can she go into depth of this stuff? And I was really surprised by the science of women in horror. That's a pretty thick book, too. And I got it. I'm like, shit, I just got this book last night. There's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do this book justice. So rather than try to lie and roll with it and be like, yes, I read the book, blah, blah, blah. I was like, listen, I just I got what I could out of it. And we're going to press record and go and just do whatever. And she rolled with it really well. She was a lot of fun to talk to. So um, I was just happy I was able to break up, uh, bring up a movie that she hadn't seen. Because I just, you know, when people do this type of stuff, I'm like, well, they're going to have seen a lot of the stuff that I've seen, if not all of it. So to bring up Dracula's Daughter was fun because I, I like talking about that movie. That's an overlooked old black and white. I mean, that's from that time period. It's not uh, an aberration as far as. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. I've never seen yeah, it before. No, uh, so I had no idea it was from that time yep. period for them to be covering those kinds of topics. It, it is. Like that, but that was something that was not talked about. It is no time. shit a direct sequel, an official direct sequel to Dracula, the original. That's what it is. That's what's so crazy about it is nobody mm. knows about it. And it is an official direct sequel with a direct. I mean, I, I don't I don't remember if the Van Helsing guy might have actually been the same actor now that I think about it. Um, but it is literally just it come. It starts immediately after Dracula ends. I mean, right after. So it is an official uh, movie that way. It's not some kind of weird, you know, uh, Halloween three example where, yeah, it's in the series technically, but it really isn't because they decided that they needed Michael Myers for all that shit. And um, so is Halloween three really in the series, though? I don't think so. I think they had this horror movie and they needed to they needed to get it out there. And they said, we'll slap Halloween on it. No, no, no. People into theaters. uh, Carpenter's actually talked about it. That was his idea. He believed that it shouldn't keep being Michael Myers. He wanted to make it into an anthology series where it was the conceit of Halloween. That was the idea that he had. And it bombed so badly that the studios were like, whoever had it said, no, we're going back to this. This is what they want. We're going to give them that. And um, so, no, that was intentional. It's just, it's just a, Oh wow. Okay. That movie suffers from having a protagonist. That's a fucking scumbag and just a plain scumbag that nobody likes. And it's so weird compared to the because people expected Michael Myers because you already had a sequel and the sequel had Michael Myers. So then go to a third movie and just dump that with no pretext or setup is the odd part. If they just got to Halloween two and made it a different thing or, you know, Halloween coma, this thing, people could probably have accepted it. But you've done a sequel with the same character and now you're doing a third one that has nothing to do with anything. How does that work at a time where anthologies were not like normal for, I mean, that was in the middle of all the other sequel stuff that was, ha- it was just a, it was a strange way to do it. And they handled it very badly with a movie that is fascinating, but not particularly good. So yeah, that was, that's a weird one. That's one of those examples where you go, wow, that would never happen now. 
what yeah, happened here. Yeah, because it would be screen tested yeah. and it would be axed. There would never be that concept now. It would be so unusual. It would be an independent film. It would never be made on a big studio thing. They'd say, no, no, we have a formula. The formula is guy in mask shows up with knife. Stick with that. Yeah. Thank you. Because that was when you also had like the Freddy Krueger stuff going on. That, 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 that There was like that, again, we've used this word many times today, but trope where you had these tropes of movies like slasher films. That's, you know, that's the, that was but, the whole thing about it, you know. Even Nightmare 2 is a great example of how you can vary the formula because that movie is very strange compared to the first one. You know, in a lot of ways, people say, oh, that movie is really about uh, a homosexual individual realizing he's gay and like wrestling with it. And you can see it. Not something I thought about when I saw it when I was younger. I was like, what the fuck is this? Watching it now, it's like, oh, yeah, this is very obviously what this movie is actually about. And that makes it better because, but again, it was done. <laughs> people wanted to go back to Freddie as the jokey, stupid, you know, uh, limerick guy. And that's where you go right back to three. So you go one to two, which is a weird left turn for a lot of people. And then you go back to three and then it's the formula from three on out. It's the same shit, except it wasn't as big a departure as Halloween three because Freddie's still in two. It's just a strange story for Freddie to be in. And why is the, phone got a tongue okay what's happening in here stuff like that yeah right or a giant (laughs) head i don't remember what two had but something yeah no i think it was a tongue i think the phone had a tongue on it but i i I could be wrong i was wrong about pinhead so um it was funny because we brought up a bunch of other movies that she hadn't seen yet like night of the leopis and you brought one up and i gotta give a a shout to my buddy jason off it i was i glanced over at twitter just as we were talking about the werewolf stuff and when she started talking about it jason off it tweeted on here me and my wife just wolf, watched wolf wolf uh, just watched wolf cop my only question is why did this take so long <laughs> i was like oh yeah i forgot about that movie that's really bad he's got the little snippet of the cop like holding the gun looking up in wolf face and i was like that was that was a really rough movie yeah. so, <laughs> like it was one of those movies where it's like it, it should have just been a trauma movie but you know i don't know so anyways like i said it probably appeals more to people who are into the werewolf thing than i am so i'm sure if i was i would I would get more out of it, but I watched that and I finished it going, why did I waste the time on this? Well, you watched Drawing Restraint Number. That's the thing. Once you get in a movie, you'll, you'll take, you'll endure that pain to the end. You wouldn't watch Drawing Restraint Number Nine. Oh, I'll watch it. Yeah, I'll watch it. I've, I've watched, I watched Dark Future, one of the biggest pieces of fucking human garbage I've ever seen. Don't watch it, anybody. It's fucking terrible. I watched it. I reviewed it because I wanted to warn others. I've seen... Oh, my God. What's the first movie in the girls, guns and uh, bombs thing? Uh, Malibu Express. Yeah, I remember you talking about that that movie. Yeah. So I watch them like I'll watch them. I will. And I will go through it. Did you ever watch Jesus Christ Vampire Killer? Did you did you actually watch that one? The musical? No, that's one of those where I've heard about it. But it seems like it's more that there's a thing around it because of the title than it's actually worth watching. I don't know. Maybe it is. Wow. So you do have your limits. You do have. No, it's not. It's not to say I won't watch it. It's to say that it's not a priority because that one feels like it's a gimmick movie that's that's trying to be something. And I'm always like, okay, well, I'll get to those eventually. But I'm more interested in the movies that are fascinating because people now are going, how did this ever get made? You know, like this Jesus shows Jesus shows you the way to the highway from 2019. I got to watch this thing. I mean, this thing, it's like you were talking about it was like a vampire movie where they only came out in the rain and it was neon something or something like that. What the hell was Oh, it? neon maniacs. It wasn't vampires. It was monsters. Neon maniacs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a feature I think on slash film where they talked about the making of that, that movie, that movie is a great example of what many of these types of lower end movies become is 
they had some neat ideas and they had no way to make it work. They just didn't have the budget. They didn't have the, the expertise. And so there are interesting aspects to that movie, but it is actually not a very good movie. It's actually pretty slow. You don't see the monsters a lot, but the concept and the concepts are really neat because they had individual, almost they were trying to create a universal monster stable in that movie where they had all the maniacs were going to have a theme and a, and a skill set, but they had no way to do it. They just didn't. And so it becomes a thing where you barely see the neon maniacs themselves. You don't understand why they're there. Their goal is very, well, I don't know if they even had one and they're dispatched rather easily. Uh, even though I think some of them are still left alive at the end, but it's a neat idea. I like finding movies like that where you go, okay, this wasn't good. But there's a core concept here that somebody today, instead of remaking Ghostbusters again, instead of remaking something that works, oh, we're going to let's remake Groundhog Day because that movie sucked the first time. Fuck you. Instead, let's find people should go out and find these movies and go, OK, there's three or four good ideas. They didn't have the budget or they didn't know how to work a camera or they didn't have good actors. Take that idea and remake that and make something that failed the first time and is now successful instead of oh, this is a classic and people know the name. Let's remake it, but worse. And that'll sell tickets. I mean, that's what they're going to do. But yeah, it's too risky it to do be... something like that because they need to get that money in there. So if you make a movie oh, that's a bad, that yeah, was a bad concept, it's easier and people it's just spend stupid. money on familiarity. You know, that's, that's what they yeah, want to do. It's a shame. Nobody wants to take risks in movies anymore. Yeah, and there are a lot of these types of movies where you look at them and you go, okay, this is only a bad movie because they didn't do it correctly, but it's not that it's, it's not like Malibu Express, which is just an ugly, just an ugly, ugly movie in almost every way. And just, it's just, you know, and Dark Future, which is just an insult to, to anybody who has a, a, any sense of narrative. Like these are movies that had nothing to say, so they shouldn't have been mm. made. Whereas something like even Killer Nun, which is one of my go-to references, it's a terrible movie. Uh, it's an offensive at times movie in the way that it portrays uh, particularly uh, lesbians, but at the same time, somebody could take that movie and go, okay, we're going to strip out the really stupid parts and we're going to explore the ideas of faith and what this does to a person when they're damaged and what happens if faith betrays you. There's stuff there that you could craft and rework much the way that, that, uh, I don't remember the, the director's name, the guy who redid Miss Suspiria, which everybody before that movie came out said, how dare you remake Suspiria? And I love Suspiria, the original. I love the Dario Argento version, but I also equally mm. love the new one because it, it took the very core idea and did something wildly different. A lot of people hate it. That's fine. It is, it is very different. I mean, it is almost the polar opposite. But it still is Suspiria, and that's a rare example like Blade Runner 2049 where they took something and said, okay, this all worked, but there's one way to do this in a different perspective and we can make it happen. And rarely that works. So there are ways to do it. You can see somebody take mm. even a great idea and get a new permutation. So why not take great ideas that failed and put a spin on it that works? Like David, I can see David Fincher taking Killer Nun and making something. I could see uh, there's a number of people who could take a movie's concept like that or something like Neon Maniacs, which you could easily see being a franchise because each of them could have a spinoff movie. I mean, it's like a shared universe ready to be done. It could be done. So there's a lot of that in the shit. You go and mire through these B movies and a lot of them are kind of forgettable or, you know, uh, or you get surprises like Hired to Kill, which I actually just watched. And I was like, oh, OK. All right. That's all right. Um, you know, that surprised me because it handled for its time. It took the idea of a straight man playing gay and didn't make a joke out of it, which it's such 
a ripoff movie that I expected the cheapest, ugliest jokes. And instead, it was one of the most mature handlings, as much as you can handle something like that being mature, of that concept that I think I've seen in, any, in a modern movie. It's from 1990. You do not expect uh, a huge muscled you know, Rambo stand-in being told you have to play gay to get into this country because the, the dictator is so paranoid about men that unless you are homosexual, he won't let you in. And it didn't make a joke out. I mean, it does at first. The, the way they refer to it is terrible. But once he's actually in that mode, there's no jokes. There's no extravagant, stupid accents or cheap shots. It's actually never comes up except for one instance. And even that's handled well. So there's even among all this crap, there are these times where I get a discovery where I'm like, wow, this is actually way better than it should be <laughs> way better than it should be for what this is. So that's why I watch them because, you know, you get six pieces of shit or at least things that are just mostly waste of time. And then you get one or two things where you go, whoa, this is worth highlighting, like Dracula's Daughter. Well, we've been going for a bit, and we're probably way over the hour mark at this point, but whatever. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. no, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's totally fine. That's one of the reasons why I like having you here, because there's not a dull moment. moment. Um, but again, um, where can people find you? What is your podcast, if anybody at this point still doesn't know who Ozone Nightmare is? Because you were one of the big influences for me to get into podcasting. So any chance that I have to work with you, I try to jump on as much as possible. So, Oh, sure. No, I have a good time doing this stuff. I mean, um, yeah, they can go uh, – people can go to ozonenightmare.com. That's the landing page. That is the landing page for both my artwork. So there's a link there for that if you want to look at that stuff. But the show itself, there's a show link. That's the first link. That will take you to the show. That's a, a five-day-a-week show, Monday through Friday. Monday to Thursday are five-minute short shows. Those are safe for work. They're clean, no swearing, no nothing, although I do get angry. So there is that, but I don't you know, go crazy. And then there's the Friday long show, and that's the one that's just completely out in Bonkersville. So that's where Lando is the co-host. And uh, generally, I've been doing a lot of movie reviews, especially this type of stuff, the the low, low, lesser known stuff. Not all, but a lot of it lately has been that because I like to kind of surface these gems. Um, but that's where all the stuff is. So if you go ozonnightmare.com and uh, click the podcast link, and you'll see all the show stuff there. It's on iTunes and I don't know, wherever the hell all these things are hosted. I've like clicked every if time. If you found us, yeah. you can find them. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. yeah what was your description? Something about conversation pointed at with machine guns or something like I, that? I, I have to give credit to, that was a fan who suggested that it is gentle arts of conversation punctuated with bloody power tools. That is a direct fan review quote. And I stole it uh, with the permission. So I cannot take credit for that one. But that is that is exactly right. So, yeah. And we cover everything. So there is no theme to it. It's not any particular thing. It's whatever Lando and I have found of interest in the last week. That's what the Friday show is. And the little five-minute ones are generally – some of those can be more current. Like I talked about the Apple stuff that recently was announced. I get into technology stuff because Lando doesn't care. So that's sort of where I get into the zones that Lando just doesn't give a shit about. I'll, I'll wander into those for the fives. Um, so, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on here. And uh, me and you need to set something up on your show. So uh, I guess that's it. This is oh, Rojan. Yeah. Peace out from Detroit. And you're Joe from California. So yep. peace out, stay everybody. Stay safe. Stay home. Yeah, stay safe. Stay home. Don't be one of the idiots. Peace.
on your end i am recording and reading the, this the, wow the what I, what are you I'm, reading <laughs> i'm reading one of the reviews sorry i'm just i sometimes language fascinates me when people write certain things i'm reading the some of the the amazon reviews on science of women in horror and this person somebody said it was monstrously feminine and i'm like that's a fascinating set of words to use together because monstrously <laughs> in terms of a book about horror mm-hmm. would not be what i would call necessarily a positive but Hey, well, the title does include women in the book, so I, I wasn't. No, I, just I wasn't expecting a dude book. So. No, no, but monstrously <laughs> feminine. That's an interesting set of. Oh, it's an interesting descriptive way to say. It. You I'm just feel like, like oh. that's like two words that don't go together. Yeah, monstrously. If you're if you're talking about horror movies specifically, is generally not. You know, right. Monsters, Inc. Generally, it's you know H.P. Lovecraft exploding blob of death mm-hmm. type of monster. So mm-hmm. I have a problem with it. I'm just like, oh, you know, it's the George Carlin thing. Fucking language gives you away, man. It's funny. So this is Joe from the Ozone Nightmare podcast. <laughs> a show that you talk about. Okay. Okay. So let's get this rolling. So yeah. 